This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of May 15th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. In 1977, Rabbi Dennis Sasso and his wife, Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, loaded up their car and drove from New York to Indianapolis. As the first practicing rabbinical couple in world Jewish history, they already had a fair amount of renown. They even had appeared on the quiz shows, What's My Line? and To Tell the Truth. But they were young, just a few years out of rabbinical school, so it might have been a bit of a gamble for Congregation Bethel Zedek in Indianapolis to hire them as their spiritual leaders. Dennis was named Senior Rabbi, a position he has held now for 47 years. The records are a little spotty, but congregation officials believe he has led or been involved in more than 2,400 Shabbat services, close to 1,400 bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs, 275 weddings, 1,000 funerals, 800 bris and baby naming celebrations, and 470 board meetings. At the end of this month, he will retire as senior rabbi, although the weekend of May 13th and 14th will be filled with special events honoring Sasso at the synagogue. His influence has been felt far outside the Jewish community on Indianapolis's north side. Sasso has been at the front of many interfaith and civic initiatives. He has written regularly for local and national publications, including the Indianapolis Star, Indianapolis Business Journal, and the Times of Israel. He is a past president of the Indiana Interreligious Commission on Human Equality and was co-chairman of the Race Relations Leadership Network of the Greater Indianapolis Progress Committee. He also has been honored with the Community Service Award of the NAACP. On the eve of the May 13th celebrations, I sat down with the two rabbis to discuss Dennis's decision to step down, the preparation necessary for such a transition, what he sees as his legacy, and, crucially, what exit music he would like playing as he dances into retirement. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Rabbi Dennis Sasso, Senior Rabbi of Congregation Bethel Zedek, and Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, Senior Rabbi Emerita of the Congregation, Thank you so much for making time today. Delighted to be here, Mason, once again. So you and Sandy were both named among the 250 most influential people in Indiana by the IBJ last year. One of the questions that we asked the honorees is what song would be your ideal entrance music? Is this ringing a bell? <laughs> it rings a bell, but they, ne- but they, but they never uh, quoted uh, my answer to that. If I, I, I have found out the answer. <laughs> I will tell you. Uh, Dennis, you said it is to dream the impossible dream. And I'm going to insert myself quickly in, into this and give the context. That is the signature song, of course, of the musical Man of La Mancha, which is based on the Spanish epic novel Don Quixote, which is from the early 17th century. Now tell us, why do you relate to that song? Well, partly because of my Hispanic background. Uh, I was born and raised in Panama, uh, so the story of Don Quixote is one that I studied, uh, of course, as part of my Spanish literature in high school. But secondly, because um, the 
idea of dreaming the impossible dream, I feel was uh, part of my experience. Uh, when I graduated high school in Panama, I knew that I wanted to be a rabbi, and uh, I ended up coming to the United States for undergraduate work at Brandeis University, and then four years later uh, to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, uh, where uh, Sandy and I met. And uh, as I look back on those years, while I knew what I wanted to do, I had no idea of what it meant to do those things and where life would take us. So uh, life has unfolded in meaningful and auspicious ways uh, for me. And uh, encountering Sandy uh, at Rabbinical Seminary and getting married after our first year there created a whole new reality. Uh, Sandy and I became, upon ordination, the first rabbinical couple in world Jewish history. And even though that awareness has never defined our personal relationship, our familial relationship, uh, nor in significant ways our professional work, it is something that um, uh, tells us about the unfolding of the American Jewish dream uh, and about the possibilities for surprise, opportunities, and and blessings. So that's my dream of the uh, impossible dream. We were ordained in 1974. We spent three years in separate congregations in New York. Uh, mine was based in Long Island uh, uh, and Sandy in Manhattan. So uh, for three years, we uh, were rabbis in separate uh, congregations. Then Indianapolis beckoned. Uh, I received a call, an invitation to consider uh, this position. And of course, they were very interested in the fact that we were both rabbis. So in 1977, with a one-year-old child, uh, we drove from the East Coast to Indianapolis and uh, started our association with Congregation Beth El Tzedek, and we've been here since then, 1977. Our daughter was born here uh, in 1979, and now we are proud grandparents uh, to, to four, three boys and a girl, and our son and daughter, uh, David, who lives in the East Coast of Connecticut, and Debbie, who lives here, teaches at IUPUI, are both uh, happily married and uh, raising healthy, loving children. And so you came on as the senior rabbi and you came on as... I was also a rabbi here as because I had a one-year-old and I was hoping to have another child, I decided to begin part-time so I'd have some flexibility. Over the years, however, as my kids grew and they started school, I realized that I was working full-time, and so we renegotiated my contract, and, and I became a full-time rabbi here. We never shared one position. It was always two distinct positions. Now, you literally have the opportunity uh, within a couple of days to play your own exit music this weekend. <laughs> now, I know that you are not part of programming uh, the festivities, uh, but let's say that this were a movie, and then you were in charge of, of picking the song uh, in which your character walks out of the synagogue for the last time as senior rabbi. Do you have any idea? What would that be? IBJ likes uh, song themes. <laughs> we're very arts-oriented. Yeah. 
Um, I guess it's going to be a lovely party uh, on Saturday night. Uh, so uh, perhaps uh, the song might be, I could have danced all night and carry with me, uh, carry with me the good feelings as I waltz into the God willing decades ahead. We are in uh, your office right now uh, and it is stripped of books. <laughs> it is, uh, it's bookshelves. So you have been you've been working on on the exit for a while, is that right? I announced to the congregation formally that I would be leaving during the last High Holy Days in September. My officers already knew that when I negotiated my contract uh, five years ago. I indicated this is the last long-term contract with the congregation in order to allow the congregation to prepare. But we did not announce it publicly uh, in order not to create any sense of anxiety or dislocation. So over the past uh, several months, I uh, took an extended sabbatical that was owed me from previous years. And I've dedicated those uh, four months to uh, prepare myself and the congregation for that exit. So I have... Um, uh, in these shelves, I must have had over 2,000 books, hundreds of which have been donated uh, to libraries in the city, many which I have taken home. We had to build extra bookshelves at home for Sandy and for my uh, collection. And uh, then uh, several, many of the books, as well as many of the files of our work here in the congregation will remain in a um, in a room that has been designated the Rabbi's Dennis and Sandy Sasso Rabbinic Library and Resource Center. And that will be available to colleagues and to successors uh, and to anybody interested uh, to uh, access. It has educational materials. It has pretty much complete collection of all the sermons that we have given for the High Holy Days, uh, teachings, courses, uh, some of our more scholarly publications, and important congregational records. It's not a lending library. It's a kind of a center which people can uh, uh, come into and look for something that might be of interest. So I've already had some people who've gone in there and looked for the words that uh, Sandy or I spoke at their parents' weddings. Um, uh, having been here for uh, nearly five decades has afforded us the, um, uh, the privilege of interacting with families for three and four generations. So um, that is part of the tangible legacy that we hope to leave um, and it's a record of the congregations as much as of our experience. I don't think that we mentioned this before, but Sandy, you retired in 2013. Yes, Is I did. Is that correct? Okay, just um, wanted to make sure. Did a um, few other things, though. You yeah. could say I failed at retirement. But, uh, <laughs> well, yes. I was telling I, Mason I, about your RSA. Oh, RSA. yes. Wonderful project. But I was going to suggest another song. Okay. okay. Um, Do we have to sing it together? No, I will not sing. <laughs> uh, I did it my way. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about that in the yeah. office today. Oh, really? That's so funny. Yeah. Do you know who wrote that? Paul Anka. Oh, huh. yes, yes. <laughs> so He's I, our I, generation. Yeah, yeah. Right. exactly. I say that because in many ways, Dennis did do it his own unique way. You have to remember, he comes from Panama. He decided to study in the United States to go to a new rabbinical college I had never at that been time. in the United States at the time that I came for college, yeah. 
I still had a little bit of an accent, and some words that he told me made sense in Spanish, but I didn't understand in English. <laughs> uh, but in a, and we came here to the Midwest. I was from the East Coast, and he was from a big city in you know in Panama, and we came to Indiana, Indianapolis, which we knew nothing about at the time. And he created a very unique rabbinate here, not just as an outstanding pastor and teacher uh, and speaker, but also as a very powerful community presence. So perhaps we should change the title of the song to We Did It Our Way. That sounds good. Because, <laughs> uh, because in essence, there were no prototypes. There were no models for us. Being the first rabbinical couple, uh, not only ordained at the same time, but working together uh, for uh, four decades, it was a, uh, in many ways, a totally original uh, experience. And the congregation obviously knew of this, and they were, they were excited about that, even though this is something I'm sure most of the congregants had never experienced. That's right. The congregation took a risk in 1977 to hire two very young rabbis married to one another, uh, unprecedented. And um, uh, we are glad that they took the risk. I was really fascinated by this idea of preparing the congregation for your exit and the fact that it's something that you worked on for several months. And, uh, and it occurred to me when I was thinking about retirement, I mean, you have been uh, intimately involved in the operations of this congregation for almost five decades. I mean, there's so many things. You have so much institutional knowledge, I mean, number one. But there are so many things that you are a part of, so many families that you are a part of, in a sense. How do you extricate yourself from the even just the operations of the organization? Well, I have an excellent staff, and I've been working with them uh, in these appropriate areas. Um, the congregation has been well administered uh, by responsible and capable staff and by very engaged but non-intrusive lay leaders uh, who have uh, helped to maintain the congregation uh, to make it stable. Uh, there's always a risk of a congregation of this size, uh, 700 you know, plus families, becoming institutional. And uh, the the delicate balance that a large church or synagogue or has to keep is to operate, to function uh, responsibly, uh, but at the same time to remember that it is first and foremost a caring institution, a teaching institution, a pastoral institution. Uh, so uh, the administration is a means to uh, fulfilling the interpersonal human needs of the congregation. Yeah, my only frame of reference for something like this is I'm, I'm Presbyterian. When we, uh, one of our pastor leaves, it is, the way that they design it is it's a clean break. You never see that person again. Yes. I mean, unless you're buddies. Yes. Is, is it like this way? Is it like that as well? Or are you, are you, is it more up to you to decide how much you want to be, continue to be part of the congregation? That model does not operate in, in Jewish congregations as a whole. Many rabbis stay in the community. They, uh, you know, they continue to have familial, personal, professional investments. I mean, uh, you know, I hope to be able to continue to, uh, to teach, to write, but no longer in the capacity of the active 
senior rabbi of the congregation, uh, always being there, uh, you know, as a mentor if necessary, but certainly a a process of of uh, new a new identity. But it is, uh, as you can well imagine, difficult to effectuate a complete break. But I think the congregants. Um, understand that to some degree uh, and will learn about it. What is the process for new leadership? Is there, a, for example, in the presbytery, we would have a search. We would have a national search looking specifically for uh, a new head pastor. Whoever is an, an associate really would not be eligible, this is my understanding, for that kind of role. Is there something similar on your side? Similar uh, in the sense that there is a national search. There are different uh, rabbinical placement services that we may uh, use, and uh, the search will be for a senior rabbi. We are in a good transitional position now in that, it, that I have a uh, very uh, good cantor who has served the congregation for several years and an associate rabbi who came a year ago who will provide that bridge and that continuity. But the congregation will engage in a national search for a successor. How long does that typically take? It shouldn't take more than a year. So why is it time? That's a tough question. If you would have asked me 10 years ago, seven years ago, when I planned to retire, I would have said, I don't know what you're talking about. I turned 75 years ago. And as I looked at the years ahead, uh, congregation you know, was negotiating with me. And uh, I then had a realization that I was ready to give five more years because I love what I do. But I also wanted to make sure that I would have energies and uh, God willing health after those five years to do other things, to be more available to family, to Sandy, to friends, to, to pursue interests that I had engaged in but had not been able to give my full attention to. So five years ago, I uh, and Sandy had a conversation. She was already retired. She was in the very engaged in her religion, spirituality, and the arts project. And uh, we just kind of put 75 as the right time. Uh, there is never a right time, uh, as long as you have health and strength and energies, which um, uh, gratefully uh, I am at this point uh, uh, still able to enjoy. But it was just a kind of um, a realization. Um, and it is time to also make room for the congregation to pave its way into the future. Um, I will always be, Sandy and I will always be part of the history of this congregation and it part of our personal history. Uh, but uh, there are other needs, other ideas that uh, can, that, that should be filled in new ways. So really you had five years to think about this, to dwell on it, to prepare yourself for it. But now that we're, I mean, literally, at less than 48 hours away from no longer being a senior rabbi, how are you feeling? I'm feeling very well, feel satisfied. Um, the celebration is this weekend. I still will be doing a few things into, into the end of the month. One of the 
lovely things uh, of these last months is that I had the opportunity with Sandy to officiate at the bar mitzvah ceremony of our youngest grandchild. And uh, that was just a few weeks ago. And in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll have the opportunity of officiating at the confirmation services, which is done in 10th grade of our um, uh older grandson here in the city, our second uh, grandson. So uh, kind of closing my service to the congregation with very personally meaningful uh, experiences in the family. Then we're taking the whole family, uh, our four grandchildren, and we'll, we'll let their parents come as well to a trip to Israel, uh, first for the kids and uh, first for our daughter-in-law as well. But uh, Sandy and I, as, as you know, have led many trips to Israel, have been there. I studied for a year in Israel. Uh, and uh, this we're looking forward to this both as a wonderful familial experience uh, and as an opportunity for um, the grandkids to, uh, uh, to get a on-site education about important aspects of their identity. Mm -hmm. I was interested when you said there really is no good time to step down. When I was thinking about, you know, what does it mean to, to leave a congregation? You have about 700, 700 plus families here. At any given time, you probably have a dozen families dealing with a relative with terminal illness or a relative who has recently passed away. I mean, people dealing with, with all kinds of different trauma, which is just an ongoing kind of a thing. I, I would imagine that it's difficult to just sort of step out of that. It is um, because we have been with families, as I said, for three, four generations and with individuals through times of joy and times of uh, challenge and crisis. The rhythms of a rabbi's service are established by the life cycle needs and patterns of the congregation. Uh, we are there and there have been weekends where I've had to officiate at baby namings at a wedding and at a funeral, all within a period of the uh, uh, of the weekend, mm -hmm. and uh, that is a very emotionally engaging uh, experience, and it builds uh, unforgettable ties with the people whom you have served. When you look back on those moments, I remember once having four weddings in twenty-four hours. Uh, one on Saturday night, one on Sunday morning, one on Sunday afternoon, and one uh, Sunday night. Did they have to schedule the weddings for your availability at that I point? I don't know <laughs> what was about that weekend, but uh, everybody wanted to get married. And uh, then, unfortunately, I've had situations where I've had four funerals in 48 hours. So that becomes the the rhythm of your of your experience. May I, I just want to add sure. something here uh, to give a slightly different perspective. You never leave the people that you've developed relationships with, and you never stop caring about them. You just don't serve them as a rabbi. You still are with them as human beings, as caring individuals. So, you know, our lives are woven into the fabric of this congregation, its building and its people. You don't uh, tear those threads apart. It's still part of your fabric and you just serve uh, and relate in a different capacity. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. 
Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right. We're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and my conversation with rabbis Dennis Sasso and Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. I saw on a, on a recent video on the congregation's Facebook page that uh, you were asked a, a series of questions. So one of them was, what career would you have absolutely not wanted to have? And you said, accountant. <laughs> And computer programmer, so which I'm, I to- completely I'm, understand. I'm terrible at anything ha- having to do with computers and internet, and uh, that's going to be one of the most difficult aspects of my retirement: not being able to uh, forward things to my uh, assistant and and asking her to reformat or or respond or whatever. Oh my so goodness! I'm going to have to take uh, p- part of the uh, uh, part of our. Uh, Parting agreement with the congregation is that I would get uh, uh, a certain number of hours of training in uh, in computering. Okay, computerization. Here, here's <laughs> here's what occurred to me. I mean, obviously, as you as you were just enumerating, I mean, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of very sort of intimate relationships that you've maintained, uh, different events that you've been a part of. That seems to me to be right in your wheelhouse. Were you less comfortable with the stuff where you're just sitting down at a at a desk and adding up budget numbers, uh, or is that just that stuff that that you were doing? Yeah, I, my role as the senior rabbi did not engage me a lot in in the direction of the finances of the congregation. Uh, I would uh, you know meet with the officers, set the tone of uh, you know plan together for what we want. But we have a a very capable staff in the synagogue. We have an executive director who administers the congregation. We have a full-time controller of the congregation. Uh, And uh, I have two assistant clergy and uh, have educational director, early childhood educational director. So uh, I'm the head of the staff of all this of all this group of professionals, but everyone uh, carries out his or her area of responsibilities uh, with excellence. So, yeah, I would not have wa- I would not have enjoyed being deeply engaged in the um, in the fiscal aspects of the congregation. Although I was involved in in setting the priorities that would then uh, go into uh, effectuating the appropriate. Uh, uh, decisions concerning the budgetary decisions. Tell me if I'm explaining this correctly. You have, uh, you are published regularly in the Times of Israel. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? The the publication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and typically they're columns. Yeah, they, it's it's a uh, it's a blog that mm-hmm. I have full access to in the Times of Israel, which is an international publication uh, on uh, that comes out of Israel on Jewish concerns. Uh, I also write for the IBJ from time to time. And for many years, Sandy and I wrote a monthly column for the Indianapolis uh, Star. Uh, so that has been our kind of our journalistic experience. We also have, you know, scholarly interests and we have, uh, you know, published in uh, articles in, in 
more serious academic publications. And uh, of course, a rabbi is always writing. I mean, you have to speak several times a week, whether it's a sermon on, on a Sabbath uh, or a eulogy or talking to a bride and groom. Uh, these things require uh, require thought and uh, if not full sketched out talks, at least well-structured uh, outlines of presentations. In one of the most recent uh, blog entries for the Times of Israel, you uh, mentioned a quote, and I, I might get this wrong, Rabbi Israel Salanter. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? 19th century teacher of Jewish ethics. The quote is, a rabbi whose community can never agree with him cannot be their rabbi, but a rabbi who never disagrees with this community is not fit to be a rabbi. So here's my question for you. Have there been times when you disagreed with your community or vice versa, or your community disagreed with you? Of course. And uh, the question is, how do you then uh, negotiate those, uh, those disagreements in a, uh, in a friendly and uh, civil way leading to positive outcomes? Uh, during the last board meeting, uh, just this past uh, Tuesday evening, uh, the president of the congregation, Todd Maurer, opened the microphone for people to, uh, you know, say a word of, of the memory, share a word of appreciation, recognition. And I was very touched to hear one of my past presidents say that, uh, uh, that he remembers when at the beginning of uh, his uh, tenure as president, I invited him out for lunch, uh, Sandy and I, at that time, Sandy was still in the congregation. And uh, we said, look, there are going to be times when we will disagree. Uh, you may take a, a, a point of view on something uh, for the direction of the synagogue or the board that we might have a different perspective. What we would ask of you is never to surprise us. Let's always be transparent. Let's always talk about things so that even when we have different perspectives, we can communicate them in a in a respectful and and constructive and constructive way. You know, sometimes uh, I've had from time to time uh, people who have uh, uh, vehemently disagreed with something that I have said in a sermon. I once had somebody who stood up and walked out of the congregation when I gave a sermon on capital punishment and explained the Jewish position, which is uh, in general averse to capital punishment, to executions. Uh, there will always be people who disagree with you, and there will be people in the community, people even who you don't know, uh, who will take a, a, a strong position against you. Sometimes I publish an article, and then you'll see in the comments people who uh, not only disagree with you, but uh, say something nasty or oh, malign yeah. you. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> once you're raven for the means if you're going to take the risk of expressing an opinion, you have to be prepared for people uh, either maligning you or respectfully disagreeing with you. So in a situation, for example, when you have somebody walk out of a sermon, it's pretty obvious. I mean, you say, oh, well, that's that's Abe uh, who just walked out. Is that something perhaps you would follow up on later? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You would... Uh, First of all, I would call and say, I hope you were feeling okay that you had to walk out. Right? So you, you break the ice there and you and you establish a pastoral component of the relationship. And he says, no, and then, I, then I would explore, you know, and, and hopefully um, make sure that the person understood that nothing that was said was ad hominem, directed at 
a person, but we're talking about an issue and that there are different perspectives, even within Judaism on any subject, and that I am not the only voice of Judaism. So one of the things that I reiterated several times to the congregation is I don't expect that I will always speak for the congregation. My role is to speak to the congregation and, uh, and, and in that process to also listen to you. Because as important as it is for a rabbi to teach, to preach, to talk, it is to listen. And that's the pastoral side. There is also a, a, a Jewish concept of an argument for the sake of heaven, that actually arguments can be very good <laughs> to, to help us better understand where we need to be. And if it's for the greater good, then that is a positive uh, conversation that can be had as long as we respect each other as persons and speak our position with uh, with knowledge and force, but still understand we're two human beings trying to get to a similar goal. Hopefully, you know, as you mentioned before, you're I mean, you're a senior figure and an influential figure in Central Indiana's religious leadership community. Uh, are you going to miss that aspect of responsibilities? Will those continue in some way? It's funny you should say that. Uh, last night, Sandy and I we were at a restaurant uh, in the city, and uh, several of our congregants and people we know were there, and we often get people come over to the table and chat with us. And the waiter, who was uh, serving as a young, very sweet guy, was looking at it, and he, and he said to us, you guys remind me of my grandfather. I said, yeah. He says, well, he lives in such and such a little town, and... Uh, People always come over to his table and, <laughs> and say hello to him. Uh, what I, I found it lovely, but that's the first time that some, some people tell me something. You remind me of my father, but now they're <laughs> they're likening me to their grandfather. I guess that puts me in the in the uh, senior status that you referred to. Uh, the relationships that we have built with colleagues and with um, leaders in the city, we hope, will remain. Uh, there is nothing that says that we cannot continue to. Uh, you know, we're citizens of Indianapolis uh, and of the state of Indiana to continue to do what we can to um, foster the welfare of the city and of the state. And we look forward to those opportunities. Now, one thing about retirement, uh, since I retired you know, 10 years ago, is that it does provide you opportunities to explore areas which you have never explored before or to spend some time with uh, issues that you only could do, you know, uh, in a short way. Now you can go delve more deeply into some of the areas where you really wanted to place, play a role. And there's a little more freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. Is there something on your mind that you want to dive into that you haven't been able to previously? Uh, I, wanna... I know what you're going to do. <laughs> no, Sandy I don't know what you know, Sandy but he has to me. write. He is an yeah. superb writer. Uh, he has worked with some Christian clergy in doing Jewish Christian writing, and it's something he's always wanted to do. I'm not really speaking for you. You've said it many times, um, and that he really hasn't the time to do it. So I, I'm hoping that's one of the things he will do. I think that that's an important component of what I hope to do in the years ahead. And also just to, to step back, you know— I don't want to only pursue those things that I have been engaged in already. I want to discover some, uh, some perhaps uh, other opportunities. I'm, I have few 
hobbies or uh, side involvements. I like to work out and hope to have a little bit more time for that. Uh, exercise, uh, um, perhaps I can begin to look younger uh, <laughs> after I retire uh, because you cannot always uh, plan to go to the gym while you're involved in this kind of work. So, I mean, you've heard a lot of this, I'm sure, in, in recent months, and you're going to hear a lot more of it in the next couple of days about your legacy. Is there something that comes to your mind, a preferred legacy, perhaps? What would you like to have your legacy be? I don't know what my legacy is, other than uh, having tried to do the things that I need to do and that I like to do as best as I could. My most important legacy is the one that Sandy and I have created with our family. Uh, we love our family. We uh, like to spend time with the kids and the grandkids. So uh, that uh, remains as an enduring uh, legacy. My other legacy is uh, the relationships that I have cultivated, as you had indicated before, with people in the congregation uh, and uh, in some of the work that I have done with the city uh, and at interfaith level. And uh, I hope that there will still be room for me to take uh, some ideas that I have uh, uh, expressed in diverse ways in diverse publications and pull them together and perhaps uh, produce a more cogent, uh, unified uh, expression of my uh, religious philosophy, of my views on life, of my uh, of my hopes and aspirations. Which part? Can of I oh, say something ahead. about his legacy? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> now he's worried. No. He has a pained expression on his face. Okay, let's do it. No. Well, you know, I think part of the legacy is in the many connections that Dennis has built, uh, certainly in the congregation in making this a community, not a bunch of individuals who come for services and for life cycle events, but a real community that, that cares about one another. I think connections in the interfaith world, uh, he taught and still teaches for men, uh, at Christian Theological Seminary, a very important program about uh, anti-Judaism and how do we better understand each other to appreciate each other and also in the civic community building connections in uh, with race relations with philanthropy through civic service it, it you know it's um, it's not something you can touch all the time but it's certainly there if you look around this synagogue and you talk to the people who belong here and you look around this city, so much of it has uh, been touched by his incredible pastoral stills and also really his very sharp wit and uh, his intellect. I mean, there are rabbis who excel in one of these areas over another, uh, and I may just be a little bit pre prejudiced, but I think Dennis excels in all of them. I'm going to hire Sandy as my, uh, <laughs> as my, as my marketing agent. Um, that's very sweet, Sandy. Now, for this whole conversation, you've had a piece of paper in front of you. <laughs> this is an idea that came to you, I don't know, was it last night or a night before? In the shower. Yeah. 
what what is it on this piece of paper? I think we had an opportunity to talk about it when you asked uh, the question uh, when we were talking about uh, did I ever disagree mm. with my yeah. with my leadership, and uh, then I talked about religion not as a quest for certitude, but being the questions that we ask. Uh, uh, and uh, the new questions that new answers beget. So I like questions. If we didn't have questions, we wouldn't grow intellectually and uh, in terms of relationships. So that is what I was uh, trying to express. Great. Well, I hope we have many more years <laughs> of great questions from you. Uh, guys, thank you so much for taking the time. I know this is uh, this is... What would you call this? The cliff? <laughs> the, uh, oh, I hope not. <laughs> not the cliff. This a is new the, horizon. A new the, horizon. The intersection, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, I know it's a busy time. So thank you so much for making the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. My thanks again to Rabbis Dennis Sasso and Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few features in the latest issue of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. First up, some hoteliers are skeptical of the Hogshead administration's plan to finance and own an 814-room hotel on Pan Am Plaza, saying it would have a significant and unfair advantage in the competition for convention business. As Mickey Shuey reports, the mayor's office maintains that the deal is necessary to keep Indianapolis's hospitality industry competitive. Also in this week's paper, Dave Lindquist has a preview of VCon, the celebrity-studded convention set for May 18th through 20th that aims to put Indianapolis at the intersection of business, marketing, and innovation. And you can soak in the stories of local entrepreneurs in IBJ's annual list of the 25 fastest-growing companies in the Indianapolis area. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and the economy and all of IBJ's data on central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And you may not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories and columns and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And now it works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Mm -hmm.